Hey guys, uh, greetings to those of you who are joining us from my San Jose campus, especially those who are with us for the first and second time. This is a fabulous time for you to connect with us. Also, greetings to those of you who are joining us online near and far. And again, for those who may have stumbled across us or someone invited you to watch uh, us because of this particular series, I am just so super happy that you're with us. Now, this series is called Coming Home, and it deals with the unique dynamics that happen in our families. Uh, either the homes that we grow up in or the homes that we currently live in, some of them, un some of them uh, extremely unhealthy, and how we deal and engage with those dynamics can either lead to our being undermined as it relates to our impact in the world and on the next generation and in God's kingdom, or it can empower us. So I'm super happy that you're joining us today. Uh, if you missed last week's message, be sure to go to our website. It's super, super important as it frames this series. Last week, I asked the question, how do I know when it's time to let people who are unhealthy in my life to actually let them go? And the, the, the text that we're going to return to today helped us uh, significantly with that. Today, I want to ask a different question. Uh, when should I try again? You know, the folk who I let go, you know, that boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, that child that was a uniquely very unhealthy, dysfunctional, whatever the case is. How do I know when I should think about reengaging with them or when I should try to work out a relationship with them again or if ever I should try? That's the question we want to wrestle with today. Now, we have this fascinating story that Jesus is telling in the Gospel of Luke chapter 15. The focus of the story are really religious leaders uh, of the Jewish community, and they are uniquely dysfunctional. They think they are representing God extremely well, but they are not, particularly as it relates to the folk that we call, quote-unquote, sinners. So Jesus tells a series of stories. The third one is so packed with wisdom that not only does it apply to religious contexts like the church house, it actually applies to your house and my house. Now, here's the thing that you want to keep in mind as we work through this story today and throughout the rest of the next several weeks, that the father in the story really represents God ultimately. Uh, so really, there's no backstory to this, right? Jesus tells this story and the father, the ideal figure here, represents the ultimate uh, father, God. The, the rest of the folk in the story represents you and me and all the different ways that we can be sinful and dysfunctional and hurtful. Check it out. All right, so let's get started. The, the story actually begins at verse uh, 11. Here's how it starts. It says, there was a father who had two sons. One of them came to him and said, Dad, listen, I want my share of your inheritance now before you die. And the passage says, so the father agreed and divided his wealth between his two boys. The next day, the youngest son took all that inheritance, packed up his stuff, went to a distant country, and there he wasted all of his inheritance on wild living. Afterwards, uh, a famine broke out, and this boy ended up slopping hogs on a hog farm, which was the worst place you could end up if you were a Jewish uh, person. This was a Jewish young man. It was really uh, a dehumanizing context. He had fallen as low as he could fall. And then verse 17 kicks in here. When he, this young man, finally came to his senses there in the hog pen, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants, these are the farm hands at home, the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. You know what? 
I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. And there ends the reading. God blessed this teaching that it might be illuminating, empowering, and healing to those who are listening. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen and amen. If you were with us last week, you know that I kicked this uh, teaching off by suggesting that Paul frames the conundrum, the rhythm, the dilemma that we often find ourselves in when it comes to working with people who are difficult and perhaps unhealthy in our lives. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 and 8. He says, love never fails. What he's really describing is unfailing love, faithful love. So here's two questions that we started to grapple with in our last time together. The first question is this. How do I practice unfailing love with dysfunctional, irresponsible loved ones who regularly are hurtful and destructive in their decisions as it relates to themselves and myself and other folk inside of our family context? And then there came the second question that we have to also wrestle with, all of us. What if the dysfunctional one that I'm describing, what if it's me? Is there hope? So, Last week, we looked at these two questions through a particular set of lens. This week, I want to look at these two questions through a different set of lens. But first, can you say dysfunctional? I want to make sure that we all have the same definition as relates to what is a dysfunctional family. And I'm going to add the word system. And what we mean is this. If somebody is radically dysfunctional or unhealthy in a household, in a family, it affects how everybody in that household or family works or functions because families are systems. Now, here's this one definition that I'm going to use as a working definition. There are other ways to get at this, but I love this particular definition. You know that you're dealing with a radically dysfunctional family system when it's one that is mired in conflict and chaos and it lacks structure. Another word for structure is boundaries. Often boundaries are missing. Or there's such indifference going on there that the children's physical and emotional needs cannot be met. Uh, Contributing factors to this kind of household, this kind of family, well, poor parenting, mental illness, chronic physical illness, and often poor communications. Uh, This kind of household is often defined this way. Life is often defined by chaos and tension. Give you a perfect example. You know, you don't know the, the person who lives in this household doesn't know whether the abusive spouse is going to come home in a good mood or a bad mood. So it's, it's one way today. It's another way tomorrow. Full of tension. The child that comes home in this kind of household doesn't know whether their parent is going to be sober or not sober. It's all this chaos and tension and, of course, trauma. Trauma expresses itself in this kind of household or family system in a variety of ways. In addition to what I just described, there's abuse, there's neglect. So often if parents, for example, are, 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 are um, not able to take care of their kids because of addictions or mental illness or whatever the case is, you'll often find the oldest child assuming the role of the parent, right? Uh, so abuse, 
which means emotional abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse, sexual abuse often happens in these contexts. And then secrecy. Uh, secrecy in this, this way, described, don't tell anyone about your dad. Don't tell anyone about how your mom acts. What, what happens in this family stays in this family. Don't say anything. Secrecy. Usually it's common in this kind of context. Yelling and screaming are often the only means of communication because uh, these are the best skills that the folk in that family household has to work through conflict. Radically dysfunctional family system. I just described it. And then you have not a perfect family because there are no perfect families, but a reasonably healthy family system. Here's the definition. Here's the contrast. It's one where family members nurture and support each other. Uh, and in general, they are close and individual members within the family have a sense of emotional well-being. In other words, in this household, generally, most people feel safe. There, there may be, there will certainly be moments of conflict, but generally the skills to work through the conflict is there. People know how to compromise. People know how to agree to disagree. They know how to talk through their challenges and their issues. There will, from time to time, pop up stuff like maybe some mental health expression or some addictions, but those challenges are confronted head on. They're not hidden. They're not ducked. And people work through it together as a family. You know, not a perfect family but a safe place, a healthy place. Now, what's remarkable about these two examples that I've just given you, by the way, both dysfunctional family systems and healthy family systems show up in every social context that you can imagine. There's dysfunctional stuff going on among wealthy people and poor people and middle-class people, and there's healthy stuff going on, wealthy, poor, middle-class, right? All communities, you find this. And there's a real contingent. There's the radically dysfunctional family. There's the reasonable, healthy family. And there are versions of it all in between. The point of this message is for you to locate. Because it's possible for you to be in a healthy family and still have some dysfunctional patterns. And the point of you listening to this message today and for the next several weeks is just to listen for where are you and what is God saying to you? And what is God illuminating to you? Where is the healing that God wants to work potentially in your life to empower your impact on the next generation and on the world. Now, with that said, let's turn our attention to our passage today. Uh, listen, look, verse 11 starts here. The youngest son says to his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. Now, let me just point out, this is radically dysfunctional. In the Jewish culture of the day, for a son, the younger one in particular, to go to his dad and to say, you know, you're living too long. I just want my share of the inheritance. It was radically dysfunctional. It was horrendously disrespectful to the father, disrespectful to the legacy. It had some real profound religious implications. This was a big deal. You just didn't do this in the norm of that culture. It was a dysfunctional behavior. But what is so enlightening, and I talked a little bit about this last week, is the response of the father. Notice what the text says. So his father agreed and went on and divided his wealth between the two sons. And of course, as we learned last week, he let the boy go. And we talked about all the reasons why uh, he knew it was time to let the boy go. 
Now, what is fascinating to me is how impregnated those words are. So the Father agreed. I'm always struck by what's absent from that sentence. It doesn't say that the Father struggled, didn't say that the Father argued, doesn't say that the Father did. No, the Father agreed. Immediately what jumps out to me is that the Father could have used the inheritance as a tool of manipulation. He could have said, I'll give you the inheritance if, but no, that didn't happen. The Father agreed. The Father could have used the inheritance as a tool of punishment. He could have said to his son, listen, you want to you leave? You want to trip out like that? Go ahead. But you're not getting any inheritance. You're going to have to strike out on your own. You're going to have to figure it out. This is my money. I worked all my, my years to build up this property and all this wealth. You, you, no, no, no. You're on your own. And in that sense, punish the boy for breaking all of the social and cultural norms and breaking the heart of the father. But the text says he didn't do that. The father simply agreed. Now, I want to just pause here for a moment because I want to suggest to you that uh, this is a good time for you to take just a few moments. Uh, and as you move through life, you want to you want to learn and recognize when you are inappropriately using tools of manipulation and punishment. Now, let me just give you a couple examples. Oftentimes this happens in our homes. Uh, as it relates to parents and children, for example, uh, uh, there are some what I call manipulative tactics. They often include emotional manipulation, lies, guilt tripping, threats, and other form of psychological abuse that goes on between parents and kids. And the reason it goes on between parents and kids, because when the parents were kids, that's exactly what happened to them. And they probably grew up in very powerless situations. And so the way they functioned was through manipulation. Now, one of the ways that we engage in manipulation with our kids, for example, is use of guilt and shame. This means that when the parent doesn't get what he or she is trying to get in terms of their way, they become the victim and they use guilt and shame. The father could have done this in our text. He could have clearly put himself in the position of the victim and tried to use guilt and shame. Here's how guilt and shame usually comes out between parents and kids. The parents usually say things like this. If you really cared about me, you would do what I'm asking. Or, I gave up so much for you, and this is how you repay me. Or, I've never, I'll never forget how you treated me. Or, you're just like your mother. <laughs> your father or whoever the parent, the other parent is, always thinking of yourself, reminding the kid of the parent who probably wounded you, right? Or you're never, or you will never be able to find someone who loves you like I do. So go on and walk out the door. You could hear the father using any one of these manipulative uh, tools, right? It would make, in a some sense, in his context, but he did not. The text simply says the father agreed. Because he knew that to use manipulation in this context would lead to harm, not health. Be mindful of how manipulation is working in your relationships, particularly parents, as it relates to your kids. There's one other way that we tend to 
manipulate. There's tons of ways that we, we do, but I just want to call this one out. And again, the father could have used this manipulative too. It's playing favorites. It's pitting one child over against the other child. Here's how it often comes out. I always have to clean up after your messes, but your sibling never causes any problem. Your sibling is just so much easier to get along with. Your sister or your brother can play more video games. You know why? Because they always listen to me and you don't. Why can't you be more like your sibling? That was an older brother. We could hear the, we could have, the father could have played these cards, right? The father could have said, you know, how could you can't be more like the older brother? When we use this particular manipulative strategy, what we're simply saying is, uh, you're the bad one, that's the good one. You're the dumb one, that's the smart one, right? I wish you were more like this one. And at the end of the day, what that does is it instills a sense of insecurity, jealousy, and inadequacy, a sense of in, in the child that you're talking to is the sense that they can never be do enough, be good enough. And so they end up feeling less loved and less valued than anybody else. Be careful how you use manipulation. And then finally, punishment. Can you say punishment? The father could have simply said, used his wealth and say, I'm going to withhold to punish you. You know, we use punishment in a lot of different ways. Some time ago, I was talking to a very good friend of mine. We go back over 30 years. He and his wife were going through a, a divorce, and he was sharing with me all of the challenges that they were having. It was clear to me as we talked that at the end of the day, he, there was some behavior and some stuff on his part that made it untenable for her to remain. You know, in some ways, he had created for, for his spouse what I want to call an emotional and spiritual hog pit. It's possible to do that, right? It's possible for you to end up in a hog pen and everybody that's connected with you are kind of in that emotional and spiritual hog pen of pain and blame and, and all kinds of horrendous hurt and pain. And so ultimately his wife came to the conclusion that she just wasn't going to do it. She was going to exit. Enough was enough. And so she moved out. They had property. So she moved into a smaller property and he stayed in the big luxurious property with the kids going back and forth. As he talked, I realized that what he was really doing through a variety of ways was punishing his wife for having the courage to exit. And so one of the ways I modeled it for him was I just said, I said, let me ask you a question. Since you and I both are Christians and he really does love the Lord. And since you and I both believe in the principle that Jesus says uh, that husbands ought to love their wives the way Christ loved the church and gave their life for. So we should lead in the process of sacrificing. Why are you living in a luxurious home and your, your former wife is living in this uh, challenging place? And she's got to go back and forth to make sure she's doing the kids' hair and do all this back and forth. Why don't you take that house and let her live in the luxurious house as y'all go through this separation? <laughs> he had no answer. And finally he said, well, I, if she wants to live here, she can just come on back. In other words, she can come back into the circumstances that she moved out. She can come back into the hall pen. That's my price. She can come back to the hall pen. Otherwise, I'm going to punish her. Kudos to her for saying, I'll step down in my standard of living. I'll give that up in order to regain some health in who I am. 
I know God's talking to somebody today. Be mindful of how we punish people, uh, either directly or indirectly. All right. So those are the insights that come out of the wonderful words. The father didn't manipulate, didn't punish. He just agreed. Now let's wrestle with this question here. All right. So the father let the boy go. How do we know that it's time to re-engage, right? This is the basic question. So the boy got uh, all of his belongings, the text says, a few days later. Next, le- ne- ne- next text, next li- uh, verse 13, uh, it says a few days later, the boy packed up, as I've said, got all his stuff together, went to a distant land, wasted all of his money, right? Ultimately, he ended up famished and in there slopping the hogs. The text says he was willing to eat the slop given to the pigs because no one would feed him a thing. So here's the question. So he's in this situation. Here's the question. When do I try again? And when should I re-engage? For some, it's either or. Pick whichever question is better descriptive of your situation. When should I try again? Uh, is a word about if you're the one who's dysfunctional and you've messed up relationships, when should I, what changes need to happen in me before I'm ready to try again, to re-engage with those that I have wounded? For those of you who have been wounded, uh, at what point should you try to re-engage with folk or to try again to rebuild a relationship like that wife that I've just described about that husband? At what point should you try again? Or how might you discern that, you know what? I can't do it. The situation is not sufficiently healthy enough. There's never a time for me to try again. How do you make these unique decisions? Well, I don't think there's any scientific answer to this question. There are all kinds of approaches to getting there. And I just want to suggest to you that you ought to have good counsel, a good pastor. If you're going through some very wounded situations, you make sure you get some therapy and some counseling. You bring all of that together. But this text is profoundly brilliant when it really tackles this question. How do I know I need to try again? And it, while it doesn't give us a definitive answer, it does give us some clues and some hints. Can you say clues? Can you say hints? And it begins with Luke uh, chapter 15, verse 17. Here's the defining moment. It says, when the boy finally came to his senses. Here's the point. Here's the point. Ultimately, you are looking for a shift from irresponsible to responsible behavior. Ultimately, that's what you're looking for within yourself, and that's what you're looking for for those who have hurt you. You're trying to see, did, do, is there a shift from behavior that is irresponsible to behavior that is responsible? All right, note this. So the text says this. He came to his senses. Here is the division that the text makes. All of the poor choices that the boy made that landed him in the hog pit were all irresponsible behavior. Everything that the boy does after the text says he came to his senses falls in the category of responsible behavior. You see, coming to his senses was a shift. The shift that took place in the boy happened on multiple levels. 
Number one, it was a shift in how he thought. Number two, it was a shift in how he talked to himself and talked to others. And number three, it was a shift in how he engaged, what he did. All right? Now, there are three things you want to be concerned about as you think about uh, are these shifts happening in your life? Or are they happening in the lives of others? For those of us who are thinking about the shift happening in our lives, there are, there are a couple of things that we want to be aware of. The first thing is we want to be aware uh, uh, of a distinction uh, that is there. Uh, and the distinction is really a distinction between, <clears throat> excuse me, the first thing we want to be aware of are two challenges, fear and pride. Oftentimes, it's fear and pride that keeps us from making behavior shifts. Pride, meaning uh, 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 I, I, I would acknowledge where I'm wrong, but uh, it's going to affect how people see me. And so my pride gets in the way. I would acknowledge that, that I messed up, but, but I don't like how that makes me feel. It makes me feel vulnerable. It makes me feel inadequate. So, so my pride keeps me. Or fear. I'm afraid that if I acknowledge uh, that I'm wrong and that I messed up, that I'm going to give leverage to somebody. And they're going to have leverage over me. But for those of us who are struggling with fear and pride, here's the deal. You need to recognize. And the scripture says, pride goes before the fall. <laughs> uh, judge Selena Brown was here a few weeks ago and she said, as a judge, she gets to say when things shows up on the record that shouldn't be there. She says, strike it, strike it. So whenever you find yourself dealing with pride as it comes, as it relates to your owning your stuff, you need to say, strike it, strike it. The scripture says about fear. Fear says, it says that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of sound mind and of self-control and of love. So when you're thinking about the leverage that people might have on you, listen, you get to choose. You can either focus on the leverage that people might have on you. Watch this. Or you can focus on the lordship of the God who's over you. Choose the lordship of the God who's over you. That's the one who determines your destiny, not other folks' leverage. Come on, strike it. Get fear out of the way. So you got to be aware of those two challenges. Two, in order to make the shift in your behavior, you need to be aware of two distinctions. You've got to clearly know the distinction between an explanation and an excuse. Now, interestingly enough, the other day I was working on this message on a Wednesday evening, and I got to this point. And I said, Lord, I need an example. <laughs> and then I got a text, and the text said, Pastor Herman, are you still coming to the meeting? It was a Zoom meeting. And I was 20 minutes late a meeting I had totally forgot about. And what makes it so bad, not only had I forgotten about it on that Wednesday night, <laughs> I forgot about it the previous Wednesday night, guys. <laughs> so well, I got on the Zoom, I texted the person back, this is really my, my, uh, my new director of discipleship small groups. So I texted back and I said, no, I'm coming on, I'm coming on, I'm coming on. Now, the first basic instinct is, is to go, I'm the pastor, this is the new employee. The first instinct is, you know, make some excuses. You know, you know, you know, my gosh, the people didn't remind me my this and that and so forth and so on. But no, no, no. I said, oh, my gosh, Lord, you have created this analogy for me. <laughs> so what did I have to do? I went on. The first thing I said, okay, 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 let's pray. Okay, let's just get started. First of all, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It is Absolutely my fault. Oh, my responsibility. Uh, uh, no excuses. Now, let me give you the explanation. 
Because explanation is important because usually hidden in the explanation is what I need to do to correct it, right? So here's the explanation. I said, here's the explanation, but it's not an excuse. I typically don't have appointments on Wednesday night. I'm working on my message. And so for, for the second Wednesday night, I have totally forgotten. I said, it's not an excuse. It's just the, the, the explanation. And, and, but in either case, I should have set an alarm. I should have done something. See, only my stuff. So I am so sorry. And I have to talk about how it affected her. I said, I'm so sorry. I don't, I, you know, your time is valuable. And I, I, I didn't mean to, 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 to take advantage of your time or to misuse your time. And I took action. And check it out. Going forward, I've already set an alarm. So every Wednesday at 6.15, my alarm is going to go off. See, there's an explanation. But don't allow the explanation to become the excuse. You got to know the difference. An excuse is when you say, it's somebody else's fault. An excuse is when you want to say, it's some other circumstance fault. But it's not me. It's not my fault. And then lastly... You've got to be aware of two levels of relationships. Your relationship with God and your relationship with others. Understand this distinction. When you hurt others, you hurt God. On the other hand, the way some people may lash out at you out of their hurt will be different from how God deals with you out of God's hurt. Note those two distinctions. All right, let's keep rolling here. Okay, so if you are the person who, who have wounded others in your dysfunctional behavior, you need to demonstrate by moving from irresponsible to responsible behavior that you get it. So here's the first level of getting it. I get it, and I take full responsibility. Here how, here's how it shows up in the text. First of all, notice how the boy self-talk changes. The text says, he said to himself. He said to himself. He begins to assume full responsibility for his behavior by what he's thinking to himself. He's talking to himself. He says to himself, what does he say? At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I'm dying of hunger, not because of what my father did, but because of what I did. I'm dying of hunger, not because of my father's behavior, but because of my behavior. And as a matter of fact, as I think about it from this hog pen, here's what I'm, here's what I'm discovering. <laughs> that my father's love is so great that he treats his hired hands better than a lot of folk treat family members. Come on now. And, and, and I left that. And so as he's thinking, he's, he's saying, it's all my fault. He assumes full responsibility. The first insight, you want to make sure that you're assuming full responsibility. Then the second thing he says, one way is, the first level is how he talks to himself. The second level is what he's getting ready to say to his dad. He says, next verse, I will go home to my father. And here's what I'm going to say to him. I'm going to say, Dad, I have sinned. That's the key word, the operative word. I have sinned. I have done what is wrong, what was wrong against both heaven. In other words, I've wounded God, and I've done what was wrong against you. And I can imagine him having a similar conversation I had with my, 
with, with, with my uh, new discipleship uh, uh, person. You know, I've wounded you. And, and, and here's some of the ways that I've wounded you. I've broken culture. I, 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 you know, I destroyed our sense of legacy. I broke your heart. I was disrespectful. I'm so sorry. I wounded you. I get it. And then I suspect he, his, that part of heart meant that he listened to dad. Dad might have told him some other ways that he was wounded that the boy didn't know. And he just he acknowledged that. The next thing that happens when I'm moving from, from poor behavior, responsible behavior, to positive behavior, to responsible behavior, is I get it. I want to show you that I get it by the fact that I accept the consequences without complaining. You see, when you accept consequences and complain, the complaint is you're not accepting consequences. He says, I accept consequences. Here's what he says in verse 19. And I am no longer worthy. Now, I'm going to come back to this next week, this, this notion of no longer worthy, of being called your son. Please take me on, watch this, as a hired servant. These are the consequences. He says, look, Dad, I know I got my inheritance. I, knew I, re- I know that I rejected a sonship in your family. Come on, in the family. And so I'm coming back. I'm not expecting to get my old room back. I'm not expecting to get an allowance. I'm not expecting, no, 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 no. Just, just, just let me, hire me as one of your farm hands. I'm ready to deal with the consequences. I get it. And then finally, finally, the third level is I get it, and I can show you, you know I'm getting it, because I'm taking corrective steps. This is where we get ready to try to finish this thing off. Here's what it means. So watch the text. The text says, so he returned home to his father. Listen to me. The last time the father saw his son, The father saw the back of his son and his son was walking away towards destruction, towards irresponsibility. Come on now. And the son went to a distant land. That means it was a long way to travel. Now, the next time that the father sees the boy, he has turned around. He has gotten up out of that hall pen. Y'all ain't listening. And he's putting one step in front of the other. And now he sees the boy taking steps back towards help. He sees the boy taking steps back towards reconciliation. He sees the boy taking steps back towards home. He's not just listening to what the boy has said. It's not just about what the boy thought. The boy is actually taking some steps moving towards health. Oh, my God. Look what the verse says. And while he was still a long way off, the father saw the boy walking, taking the steps that needed to be taken. Oh, y'all ain't listening to me. Taking the steps in the right direction. And the father says, I'm going to go meet him. He's so excited. Filled with love and compassion. He runs out, embraces him. All right, how do you know that you're ready to re-engage? <laughs> you got to change how you think and what you say to yourself. And you got to be prepared to change what you say to others. Own your responsibility. 
without excuses. Come on, accept the consequences without complaining. But, 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 but then, here's the, here's the kicker, begin to take steps towards correcting your situation. The board took corrected steps. Don't say what you're going to do. Start doing it. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Don't, don't, don't say I'm going to get into a rehab. Get into a rehab program. Go, go, go find a, 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 an AA program to get in. Come on. Don't, don't, don't say I'm not going to be a source of violence in the home. No, 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 no. Check yourself into a program that helps you to begin to re, 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 reformat your, your, your reaction to pain and trouble so that you can begin to become a different person. Don't, don't, don't just say, come on, take those steps. Go, go find a financial manager and, and let that financial manager help you to begin to structure a budget and a path to get your finances. Don't just talk about what you're going to do. Take the steps. And for those of you who are in the father position, when you see somebody who's thinking different and talking different and taking steps, even if they're baby steps in the right direction, those are good clues. <laughs> Those are some good hints that suggest maybe it's time for you to re-engage and meet them halfway. Oh, my gosh. Let me end it here because I'm out of time. I just got to go ahead and make this point. Mm. Every now and then, guys and ladies, sometimes the behavior that you will do will be so injurious, will be so wounded. That as you start to go home, oh, let me just give you the point. Here's the point. Sometimes you can't come home to others, but you can always come home to God. Sometimes what you've done will be so injurious, will so, so wounding that you, 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 you can't get back with that marriage. You, you can't reconcile with that child. You, you, you can't fix it with that sibling. You, you, you've lost that job, and you're not going to get that job back, right? And you just got to accept that these are the consequences, that there's nothing that you can do barring God's intervention and miracle. And so you just got to accept that that's the reality. But, but, but because that is the reality does not mean that that's your destination. Oh, you need to hear an everlasting God and an ever-loving God declare, you might not can go home there, but you can come home to me. The Father represented God, I'm telling you. And everything begins by reconciling with God. This is the one who says, God is the one who says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. God is the one who says that when I forgive your sins, I will move them as far as the east is from the west. God is the one who says that, that when I forgive you, I will remember your sins in anymore, that I'm going to draw a boundary between your yesterday and today. And yes, you might mess up going forward, but I'm not going to bring up your yesterdays. Come on now. I'm going to engage with you right where you are with grace and mercy. Oh my God. This is the one who shows up in Jesus who the scripture tells us that he became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And in his death on Calvary Cross, he creates a way for us to come back home. So God declares to somebody today, come on back home. And know I'm waiting. Amen and amen.